Can supply chains be more sustainable without losing performance, efficiency, and resilience? It's possible with GEP. With strategy-managed services and AI-powered software, GEP helps hundreds of market-leading companies build sustainable supply chains that are cleaner, greener, and highly effective. Supply chains that are good for the planet and good for your business. GEP. Software. Strategy. Managed services. GEP.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. In New York, I'm John Fassman. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. 36 years ago, world leaders signed the Montreal Protocol, which limited the use of chemicals that damage the Earth's ozone layer. It proved successful, but whether it provides a model for future climate accords is another question. And when the pandemic began, many economists saw automation as a solution for businesses, just as many workers feared being displaced. That displacement hasn't happened. We'll explain why. But first... In the middle of October, I went up to a farm near the city of Chernihiv in northern Ukraine, owned by Fikhori Tkachenko, a farmer. It's a really big farm, about 1,500 hectares. And he was forced to flee the farm when the Russians invaded. They occupied it for several weeks in March and early April. <laughs> Yeah, they don't have uh, the roof and they are uh, complaining. <laughs> and they are saying to me, why don't you do the ceiling for us? You are a bad owner. <laughs> in the fighting for the farm and in the occupation by Russian troops, a lot of buildings were destroyed. Shells landed on his territory. He's got an entire field full of 220-millimeter rocket casings. Matt Steinglass is The Economist's Europe correspondent. They knocked the roof off of his cow shed, tore big holes in the office, and destroyed the automated cow milking facility that he had. A bunch of Russian soldiers sort of bivouacked in what had been the office and left behind a real mess in addition to some pulpy Russian war novels. They killed about 148 of his cows, about half of his herd. He said they cut off the parts that were easy to butcher and ate those, and then they left the rest of the carcasses around to rot. When he came back a few months later, he found that in the potato shed, they had rigged up one of the pillars holding up the roof with explosives. He thought that they 
hoped that the explosives would go off when somebody drove by with a forklift and bring the roof down on top of them. But they removed that booby trap and they fixed the potato sorting machines, which the Russians had also damaged. He measures his total losses at about a million dollars. The damage the Russians did to Krihori's farm is pretty typical. He's actually in better shape than a lot of farmers because he has more accesses to financial resources. Ukrainians are doing an incredible job of keeping the economy running, repairing damaged infrastructure, and going to work every day. But the damage that Russians have done is enormous. It's really a devastating picture you've painted, Matt. Can you broaden it out and outline the scale of the damage Russia has done to Ukraine as a whole? The most accurate summing up of the damage that we have at this point is a rapid damage assessment that was done by the World Bank in September. It only covers the damage through June 1st. And the figure they put on rebuilding the country was $349 billion. There are cities in the East that are flattened. About 8 million people, which is about a fifth of the population, have fled the country, at least temporarily. And the dollar figure of the damage is rising all the time. It's just an immense wave of destruction. Can Ukraine afford to recover from the war? They will need a lot of help. The government's revenue collection has dropped dramatically because the economy is in trouble, so they're not collecting as much taxes. They have a deficit of three and a half to $5 billion a month, which has to be covered by foreign donors. Foreign direct investment is at about 1% of the level in 2021. And ultimately, to rebuild the country after the war is over, Ukraine's allies think they're going to have to do something comparable to the Marshall Plan, which was a gigantic American program after World War II that rebuilt Europe, transferred foreign currency to European economies, and allowed them to trade their way back to prosperity. What Ukraine needs is partly an injection of cash to its businesses to get themselves going again, and partly tremendous amounts of money to rebuild infrastructure so that it can physically export the goods that it needs in order to become prosperous again. What would a modern-day Marshall Plan look like for Ukraine? The Ukrainian government breaks the aid schedule down into three stages. First is the amount that they need right now in order to just keep the government running and keep the country running. And they figure that that will require $38 billion and that this stage lasts for about 18 to 36 months, they hope. The second stage, which would sort of overlap with the first stage, involves urgent reconstruction tasks, basic infrastructure, destroyed housing so that people can come back from abroad and actually have a place to live. And they figure that will cost about $105 billion. And then a few years after the fighting is over is when they expect the Marshall Plan-like phase to start. And there we're starting to talk about hundreds of billions of dollars. Some of that will be private investment. Some of it will be government aid. And the aim there is not just to reconstruct what Ukraine already had, but as they say, to build back better They want to redesign the energy system so that it's more green. They want to reform businesses so that they operate under European regulatory systems because they expect to be joining the EU within a few years, they hope. And the hope would then be that Ukraine would see the same kind of recovery that Europe saw in the aftermath of the Second World War? That is what the Ukrainians are hoping for. In some ways, the job of rebuilding Ukraine is a bit tougher, partly because the money has to start flowing while they're still fighting but also because the funding system is more complicated. The Marshall Plan was an American program. All the money came from America. The system to fund Ukrainian reconstruction is going to combine funding streams from America, but also the EU, individual European and Asian countries, and all of these multilateral institutions like the World Bank, the IMF, the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, the European Investment Bank, and a whole bunch of others. 
And coordinating that is very complicated. So they're finally starting to schedule regular meetings to agree on who is going to fund what so that they're not competing with each other and not overlapping with each other. The other big challenge is that big aid programs that the world has seen in the last 30 years or so have not had a good record in Afghanistan and Iraq, and then in the effort to rebuild Haiti after the earthquake there in 2010. There has been a tremendous amount of international funding, and not much has been accomplished. And one of the major reasons for that is that large amounts of aid seem to really encourage corruption. How big a problem do you think that might pose to reconstruction in Ukraine? That's a tremendous threat to Ukraine, because Ukraine has been one of the most corrupt countries in Europe for a long time, or was before its revolution in 2014. In the period after communism, Ukraine became an extremely corrupt country run partly by oligarchs who used the political system to try to advance their business interests. The 2014 Maidan revolution was partly precisely about that. It was an effort by the Ukrainian people to kick out the oligarch-run government and the Russian-aligned oligarch-run government that they had and to try to become cleaner, less corrupt, and reorient themselves towards the EU. And in some ways, they have had a tremendous amount of success. It's been a sort of a two-steps-forward, one-step-back process over the last eight years. But they have a terrific anti-corruption movement in Ukraine. They have some of the best anti-corruption NGOs and civil society activists in the world. Uh, and one of the achievements of this movement has been to design one of the world's best online, open, digital procurement system for monitoring government transactions, government tenders, and government contracts. And I met up with one of the people who designed that system, Victor Nestulia, in Kiev at a cafe during a missile raid. You can hear the air sirens in the background. Right. And there is corruption now and there will be corruption. And uh, obviously, I cannot say that, you know, all the corruption challenges were overcome before the war. Right. Step by step, we are developing into the right direction. It's obvious, I believe, for the whole nation that we are looking into the Western values. We are fighting for uh, democracy. We are protecting democracy. And uh, One of the other reasons to think that Ukraine may be able to resist corruption in its reconstruction program is the tremendous upsurge in patriotism and national unity that's happened because of the war. At this stage, engaging in corruption feels a bit like treason in Ukraine. And when... Analysts of corruption talk about how you change corrupt societies. They talk about windows of opportunity. There's a really interesting report that was put out by USAID, the American aid agency, in September. They call it a decleptification guide on how corrupt countries move on from their corruption problems. Sometimes you get a big political sea change, and that's a window of opportunity when things can change. They think of the 2014 revolution in Ukraine as one of those windows of opportunity, and this war right now is another one. That's good news in a sense, but the scale of the problem is still enormous. How optimistic are you, Matt, about Ukraine's post-war prospects? I am extremely optimistic about Ukraine's post-war prospects, especially because of that upsurge in patriotism. Ukraine feels like a real nation now. To whatever extent it was a divided society before, it now feels like a unified country with a real sense of itself and a real government. And I think that enthusiasm spills over into governance, it spills over into society, and it spills over into business enthusiasm. One of the most important things that the Marshall Plan did was to give Europeans the sense 
that the Americans were going to backstop them. It gave them a sense of reassurance that there was going to be a future for their economies. They could take risks. Taking risks means you can invest. And that is what the reconstruction plan in Ukraine needs to do. It needs to provide the infrastructure conditions for investment to take place. It needs to provide insurance so that business investors feel comfortable putting their money into Ukraine. It needs to give the Ukrainians the security to feel that they can go ahead and rebuild their economy, which is what they want to do. All right, Matt, thanks very much for your time today. Thank you, John. What do resilient, sustainable, and high-performing supply chains have in common? They are all powered by GEP Software. Built on GEP Quantum, the AI-powered, low-code software platform for procurement, supply chain, and sustainability, GEP Software helps market-leading companies worldwide achieve breakthrough performance and results. GEP, helping the world's best companies do better. Visit GEP.com. The stratospheric ozone layer is a vital shield protecting the Earth from ultraviolet radiation. In 1985, when scientists discovered it was disappearing over Antarctica, there was pressure to act quickly. We are going to have to rethink as a society all the products that we take for granted because many of them simply will not be able to be produced or if they can be produced, will have to be produced in a significantly different way. The cause of the depletion had been identified as chlorine from chlorofluorocarbons, or CFCs, chemicals used in refrigeration, air conditioning, and products such as hairspray. World leaders came together to strike a deal to try to repair the ozone layer. The Montreal Protocol improves the odds in the risky game the world has been playing with its own future. Kofi Annan, a former Secretary General of the United Nations, called it perhaps the single most successful international treaty to date. And now, 36 years later, the UN is able to say just how successful it has been. Every four years since that deal was signed, a progress report has been released showing what's happening with the ozone net. Rachel Dobbs writes about climate change for The Economist. And the one that has just been released shows that Finally, the world is back on track for the ozone to return to the level that it was in 1980, so before this kind of damage started happening. So we're on our way, and it will take, around the world it varies, but it will take between 2040 and 2066 to go back to its ordinary levels. What does this mean? Remind us what the ozone layer does. So there is a specific layer in the stratosphere that surrounds the Earth, which has a higher concentration of ozone, which is a gas, than anywhere else. And that layer with more ozone in it is really, really important for the health of almost all living things on Earth. Because what it does is it protects the ground beneath it from ultraviolet radiation, which is a form of radiation that comes from the sun. And too much ultraviolet radiation it can be incredibly damaging. In humans, it causes sunburn in the short term, 
which over the long can turn into various types of skin cancers. It can also be very damaging for the eyes. It causes cataracts and that has been linked to certain immunodeficiency disorders. It's also damaging for plants. It can lower crop yields and it can be very destructive for organisms in the ocean like fish or zooplankton, which form the basis of a huge amount of food chains. And the reason that it was previously being damaged and depleted was because of the use of certain chemicals called chlorofluorocarbons. So how has that reduction in CFC use affected the ozone layer? So by slowing the rate at which the ozone layer is being damaged, it has meant that a level of protection from ultraviolet radiation has been left. Whilst it's obviously hard to kind of calculate a benefit that hasn't happened, there are several models and studies that look at what they call a world avoided, which is a world in which the ozone layer remains depleted and In terms of health, one estimate by American scientists is that the Montreal Protocol and doing away with CFCs meant that by the end of this century, 443 million cases of skin cancer will be avoided. And have there been any other consequences of the world's cessation of using CFCs? Yes. So whilst the Montreal Protocol was specifically looking at ways to stop ozone depletion, it has actually had a really wide-ranging consequence on the level of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. So CFCs have a very potent greenhouse effect, which means that they block the heat from Earth dissipating back into space and trap it there, and that contributes to rising temperatures. By doing away with this one source of greenhouse gases, we have avoided having even more temperature rise than we're currently seeing. The estimates for exactly how much temperature rises have been avoided vary, but one study by Australian researchers suggests that the implementation of the Montreal Protocol will have seen off about one degree of extra warming by 2050. And to put that in perspective, we currently are at around 1.3 degrees of warming since before 1900. So, you know, that would be almost the level again of the global warming that we've already seen. And actually, The Economist ran an analysis on this a few years ago, and it found that the Montreal Protocol was the most effective and efficient global warming and emissions reduction policy ever enacted because it essentially got rid of the equivalent of about 135 billion tonnes of carbon dioxide, despite that not being the set goal of the agreement. There are, though, some complications. So... The CFCs that have been phased out had to be replaced by something. Humans still needed refrigeration. They still needed air conditioners and so on and so so forth. So they were replaced by something called hydrofluorocarbons, which are a man-made chemical that does not deplete ozone and is also used in fridges and stuff like that. However, these also do have a potent greenhouse effect. So putting them into the atmosphere, whilst we got rid of the CFCs, we are still putting in something that has somewhat a greenhouse effect, and therefore is damaging. So, Rachel, are there elements of the Montreal Protocol that can be successfully copied elsewhere when it comes to climate change mitigation? So, I would really like to say that there are, because, you know, I would really like other parts of climate negotiations to go forward and be successful. And when this report came out, quite a few of the voices around it, including the head of the World Meteorological Organization said, you know, this is an example of what can be achieved in climate action if everybody works together. And whilst there's certain stuff, it doesn't actually quite work as a template overall. Basically, the Montreal Protocol is incredibly good as an agreement to stop the use of these specific type of chemicals, which is 
chemicals that it is incredibly obvious that they come from man, and chemicals which, while useful, do not form the backbone of sort of whole economies. It wasn't the same thing as telling in an economy like the Saudi Arabian economy that runs on the profits of oil, like you have to actually step away from this thing that you rely on so heavily. And also, because the scale was smaller, the costs of transitioning were much less, you're not looking at something like rejigging the entirety of the world's energy system towards renewable sources. But the reason broadly that it was so widely adopted was that it was something that countries were kind of willing to give. And that is much more complicated when it comes to the negotiations that we have now over carbon emissions, which is because carbon emitting fuels power almost all of the world economies. Methods that worked for the Montreal Protocol won't necessarily work for carbon emissions or any of the other stuff that has to be sorted out as part of climate action now. All right, Rachel, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, John. When COVID-19 swept across the world in early 2020, shutting factories, restaurants, and stores, economists and workers began to wonder what would happen to people's jobs. In particular, they worried that automation might take some jobs in the post-pandemic workplace. Almost three years on, it's becoming clear that what many people predicted hasn't happened, at least not yet. When the pandemic hit in 2020, there was a lot of talk among economists about what would happen to people's jobs. Callum Williams is a senior economics writer at The Economist. And in particular, there was fear that a wave of automation was going to sweep over the labor market, leaving lots of people structurally unemployed. So you had some famous economists who went in front of Congress and asserted that in fact, this was already happening and that robots were being brought in in unprecedented numbers and were taking people's jobs. In early 2021, you had a big research paper from the IMF, which came to similar conclusions. Where we are now, two years on, is that it's about time to look at whether those predictions were correct or not. And why did they believe this? Why did people think the pandemic would result in more automation? So there are two reasons. One is based on what happens in regular recessions. It's often an opportunity for companies to try something different. They look at new ways of working and new ways of using their labor force. And what that has meant typically is that more jobs than normal get automated away. So companies invest in machines and people's jobs are eliminated. So that's the first reason. And the second reason is to do with the pandemic itself. There was a belief that companies were concerned that workplaces were going to be sites of COVID spread And so what they would do is that they would buy more robots that could take the place of humans because robots, of course, don't get sick. So a couple of years on from those predictions, how do they look? They look pretty spectacularly wrong on two levels. One, if you just look at the headlines in newspapers, it's clear that we're absolutely not in a situation where workers are complaining about a scarcity of jobs. In fact, we have the opposite, where employers are complaining about a scarcity of workers in pretty much all rich countries, with a couple of exceptions. Unemployment rates are super low. Employment rates are super high. So it's hard to square that with the idea that lots of people are becoming structurally unemployable. 
And then once you dig down into the data, this pattern of the automation that never was becomes even clearer. And I understand that you've done some digging into the data yourself. Can you tell us about that? Right. So one of the weird things about the automation debate is that it's a kind of weirdly data-free debate. However, what you can do is dig down into different countries' labor markets and basically divide jobs into the sorts of occupations that you think are very difficult to automate. Something like a concert pianist is probably not going to be automated. But you can also look at the jobs that if automation were happening, you would expect to be automated. So the classic example might be someone who works at a supermarket checkout. And so you can basically have two buckets, automatable and non-automatable. And you can look at what's happened in a few different countries since the pandemic struck. So we looked at the US, Australia, and Britain. And our conclusion is that the pandemic, if anything, slowed down automation rather than sped it up. The long-run trend is that automatable jobs do decline as a share of overall jobs. And this is kind of what you'd expect because machines do get better over time. And so things that they couldn't do before, they can do now. What people expected was that that was going to massively accelerate during the pandemic. And that didn't happen. So, for example, in Australia, in the two years before the pandemic, automatable jobs declined as a share of the total by about two percentage points. But then during the pandemic, in the, in the two years after the pandemic had begun, they declined by about 0.5 percentage points. So a deceleration. You find similar trends in the UK, although for various boring reasons, it's a little bit more difficult to measure. And then in America, the number of automatable jobs has in recent years actually increased slightly in absolute terms. And it's much higher than you would expect based on pre-pandemic trends. Do you think this might be a question of time that that automation takes a while to implement and you could expect to see a wave of it in the future? That's always possible. That would be the last redoubt of the, as it were, the, the automation doomsters. I mean, I think the incentive to replace humans with machines for public health reasons is no longer a thing. The threat of the pandemic to most people has largely passed. There may be a lag effect in the notion that it takes time to buy new machines, to invest in robots, to work out how they can be used in your company and so on. So yes, it's possible that what we're going to see is a lag. But I think after two years, that starts to become a little bit implausible to me. And I think the other thing is, people have been warning about this off and on for decades, that machines are going to take everyone's jobs and no one's going to have anything to do. And time and again, it has just been proven to be complete nonsense. So my feeling is that this is going to be another example of that. All right, Callum, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. You can get in touch at podcasts at economist.com. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow. GEP AI-powered digital transformation. 
GEP is the global leader in AI-powered procurement and supply chain transformation, helping companies achieve impressive new levels of resilience, sustainability, and competitiveness with strategy, managed services, and AI-powered low-code software platform, GEP Quantum. Hundreds of market-leading companies worldwide count on GEP to transform their procurement and supply chain operations and achieve amazing results. GEP.com